It's the Progress Pod, a production of the Franklin County Coalition for Progress. I'm Pete Mazzoni with Jeremy Kate. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. In the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. Where do we go from here? Chaos or community? These are the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. In Chambersburg, a recently formed group focusing on racial reconciliation is choosing the latter. On today's podcast, we'll talk with two leaders of the group about their efforts, about some of the dynamics surrounding race in Franklin County, and about two upcoming events the group has planned for February. With us, we have Marvin Worthy and Pastor Scott Bowerman. Thanks so much for being with us here today. Well, thanks for having us. Glad to be here. No problem. Let's talk about the program and what you're doing. The programs that we have coming up, I mean, there's a number of initiatives that we're trying to develop and introduce to the community, and this is our coming out event, if you will, uh, that's scheduled for February 10th. It's an opportunity for members of our community to share their voices based on their experiences uh, involving um, race and what life has been like for them because of the color of their skin. And so I think it's important for us to listen to the stories because I think oftentimes uh, we're not aware of what happens in our own backyard. And so this is just an opportunity for us to listen and lament, to think about those experiences, uh, to be able to, to some degree, empathize and hopefully be charged to do something to uh, at least minimize the risk of those things happening again. But in order to respond to issues, we need to be aware of what those issues are, what they look like, what they feel like, and what they sound like. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, that's our approach in this first program. And so that's the first half of it. The second half is an opportunity for us to talk about how do we become charged enough to go and do something about it? What is our individual responsibility and what is our collective responsibility? And let's meet together as a community to outline what that could look like potentially. Mm-hmm. How, do we, how, how do we become advocates and allies and active participants in our own rescue? Mm-hmm. What um, is our individual responsibility? Well, our individual responsibility, one, is to speak up when injustices occur. Um, our other individual responsibility is to teach ourselves about what we don't know. It's not always the responsibility of those we don't understand to teach us how to understand them. Mm-hmm. We have to take some, in, some individual responsibility to learn and grow. And what we're doing as an organization is try to create a space for that to occur. Um, the dialogue to occur, hopefully the opportunity to direct people in directions or to direct them in places towards resources that will help them increase their awareness and understanding around race. You'd be surprised how often words are used interchangeably and they mean something completely different. Racism and stereotypes are two different definitions. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes in my conversation, those words are being used interchangeably every day with no real understanding about either of the words. And so I think it's important that we find ways to educate, that we individually find ways to grow ourselves and take ownership and responsibility, how can one do that? Well, there are opportunities that occur in our community. 
where you can come out and be trained. Now, it may be a little uncomfortable, but I've learned a long time ago, the more time you spend being uncomfortable, the more uncomfortable becomes comfortable. Mm-hmm. And the only real growth that takes place is in our uncomfortability. Right. Getting out of your comfort zone. Getting out of your comfort zone. You know, oftentimes people quit right at the edge mm-hmm. of a breakthrough mm-hmm. because their feelings were hurt. Mm-hmm. Because they're uncomfortable. But when you push through the uncomfortability, that's where the lessons are learned. Mm-hmm. That's where you begin to identify who you really are, where you can identify your areas of development. You know, I never thought that about myself. Well, because you, you finally have placed yourself in an uncomfortable position that demands of you to ask difficult questions and demand honest responses. What does that uncomfortable position look like? I mean, can you kind of describe it or put us in the mindset of that? Yeah, I can. Uh, The journey of transformation for me has begun by listening and becoming aware that Marvin and I live in the same community, roughly the same educational background, socioeconomically the same, yet we have entirely different experiences. Mm -hmm. I walk into a room filled with people and I'm tall and white and people make a set of assumptions about me that I'm safe and maybe somebody they want to get to know. Marvin walks into a room full of people he doesn't know, and he has an entirely different experience. And for me, hearing stories from Marvin, Linda, and others about what it's like to live in Franklin County with the the daily barrage of, of judgments, sometimes overt comments, is startling and has shaken me to my core. That we live in the United States of America in 2019 and this is still an enormous issue and everyday people of color are suffering. They, they have a, a burden they carry with them that I never have to think about. Mm-hmm. So the first event we're having in February, I hope people will come and just listen and hear stories about what it's like to be a person of color mm-hmm. in Chambersburg in the United States. Mm-hmm. It, it, it will shake you. Would you care to share some of that with us? What it's like to be you in Franklin County? How much time do we have? All the time you need. I think it's safe to say that uh, I've established a relationship in this community, a relationship uh, that's undergirded with great integrity and compassion and a deep care and concern for our community and for the youth in our community. And being really the initiator and trying to create opportunities for collaboration for us to see each other as human beings and and although all that is a reality for me depending on how I dress my experiences becomes very different depending on uh, whether or not I walk into a place for the first time or for the 15th time will differ let me just give you a couple examples and I don't try to speak for every African-American male by any, by any stretch of the imagination, but I have shared commonalities with African-American males and some of some similar experiences. But as simple as walking up to the, the tailor in a bank and being in line behind the person in front of me and listening very attentively to how they're being engaged. Now, good morning, how are you? How may we help you? Versus when I walk up, is there something we can help you with? And it's not just the verbal, it's the nonverbal that's pretty telling. Mm-hmm. 
that is a different, and I see the uncomfortability on the faces of people. Mm-hmm. I see that they feel a, a little awkward, but they find some way to distinguish that there's a significant difference between you and the person that was before you. Now, I can't make judgments about what that's about, but what I do know is that the person I observed prior to me arriving at the teller, him or herself, is completely different. It's not welcoming. It's not inviting. The same as in visiting churches. My wife and I was looking for churches. That we would walk into a church, and there'd be people walking ahead of us, and we listen to this amazing greeting. Welcome. Thanks for coming. Please come in. Join us. We walk up to the door moments later. Is there something we can help you with? We're like, uh, I hope so. <laughs> We're coming. That's why you're there. You know, and so when you have been exposed to it, you develop the ability to see it as it is developing mm-hmm. just because you've you've seen it long enough you've heard it long enough that you can identify it pretty quickly mm-hmm. and um, anybody that knows me I'm going to challenge you about it and I'll say something like are you open to a teachable moment are you aware that how you're greeting me was very different than the person you greeted before me. You you do that on these occasions. You don't know me then. <laughs> no, that's, that's we okay. really don't know each other that well. Because I believe in this. Pete, I do a disservice to you. If you are participating in language and behavior that's offensive. Yeah. And I say nothing. Yeah. What makes us a, a united community is our courage to hold people accountable. And I'm not saying in a way that's defeating or abusive. I want to be civil. But I want to make sure that people are aware of the language, the attitude, the actions, and how it impacts individuals and potentially how it impacts a community. Mm-hmm. And so absolutely, I say, are you open to a teachable moment? Are you aware that how you've interacted with me was very different than the person before me? Well, what do you mean? It was joyful. It was inviting. You were open. You smiled. You, you made the person feel welcome. And I feel like I'm being interrogated. Mm-hmm. Like you're wondering why I walked into the door. Are you aware that there's a difference between that? Well, I don't know what you mean. Maybe you didn't. But you made a, a significant change. And so can you help me? I don't think so today. I don't think that this is a place for me today. Mm-hmm. And I walk away because what? Now, now here's, here's, here's the frustrating part for me. The pastor at the pulpit might have a powerful message for me. He or she may demonstrate the kind of welcoming and an invitation like no other. But I'll never know because they were not careful about who they had at the front door. Mm-hmm. Does this go to the unconscious bias idea that people are walking around they're not even aware that they're addressing you differently because they see you as the other or they must be perceiving you as something not regular not part of their normal lives or they wouldn't make a shift you know and it seems to kind of substantiate this idea of unconscious bias absolutely i'm so accustomed to treating you a certain way i don't have to think about it i don't have to flick a switch 
to address. It just happens because mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a part of your DNA. Mm-hmm. It's what you become. Mm-hmm. It's what you've been socialized to believe. And so automatically the switch takes place. Unconscious bias is that I don't think about it. It just, yeah. I'm not even aware that it's happening because it's so common for me. It's not, a, it's not something I have to kind of digest for a moment. Right. And then you have the, the very opposite, where people are very candid, very intentional about it. I want you to be clear that you're not welcome here. And with no apology. One would think uh, that kind of thing doesn't still happen. Oh, absolutely it does. It happens when I have a three-piece suit on, and it happens when I dress for the gym. Now, it may not happen as often in my suit as it does in my gym wear, Mm -hmm. but it happens. Mm -hmm. Pete, it happens in front of me, in front of audiences. I've had an individual in a session I was doing training, and I posed what I thought was a legitimate question. Now, keep in mind, I was invited to come do the training. And I was invited because the organization saw a need for this issue to be addressed. The issue of specifically? Racism, oppression. And so this was a session on diversity and inclusion. I posed the question, what do you think we need to begin to, how do we need to begin to think differently about the way that we deliver services knowing that the demographic of our our population has changed drastically. It's become more diverse than ever. Mm -hmm. And so how do you make the shift? And the response I got was the following. I don't need to do anything. As far as I'm concerned, I don't like zebras, and you can take your monkey self back to Africa. Now, I want you to understand, that's not the most powerful piece of this statement. What's powerful is that he had the courage in front of his peers and his supervision, his supervisors, to make a statement with no fear of any accountability. Mm -hmm. That's the larger story. What gives an individual permission in an open forum in front of all of his colleagues to think it was okay to be as overt and blatant about his bigotry. What does it say about the organization? Or at least his perception of the organization. Was there any pushback in the moment? From anyone in the audience or? I think people were, I think there was a shock value. I don't think his peers believed, even if they believed in what he was saying. They couldn't believe he said it. They couldn't believe he said it out loud. And so there was some shock factor. Now, this was Martin Luther King Day, by the way. And so my schedule was booked that day. So I came to do a training. And the training was two-part. I did, I did two hours, and I'd come back and do the other two hours. In between, I was a keynote speaker at uh, Hack over at Hagerstown Community College as the MLK speaker. And the title of my speech was, We Come a Long Way. Well, I scratched out my title. Yeah, man. And had to pretty much from scratch make some adjustments to my keynote based on my experience. And then I had to return. And when I returned, I knew pretty immediately that he had identified those who supported what he said. So when I came back, he had a small group of people sitting out front with uh, the intent to get a rise out of me. 
And so I'm a professional Pete. I'm contracted to do the job I'm assigned to do. And so I say, I think we can all agree this was an interesting first half. I said, but here's what we're going to do. I'm going to break you up into smaller groups, and I want you to generate a list of all the, all the words, language, actions, activities, attitude that you think are not acceptable in an environment like this. And then I want you to report back to the larger group what your, what, what your thoughts are. So what I did, instead of it being about him and I, I made it about him and his colleagues. I needed for his colleagues to respond to what had occurred. Right. And I did it in a way that stayed within uh, the context of the training. And I have to say that I was, I felt pretty good about the fact that his colleagues were pretty clear about why that kind of language and behavior is unacceptable in our organization. I, I was pleased about that. And so, that gives you some idea. Let me share a second story with you. I received a phone call. Is this Mr. Worthy? I said, yes, it is. Uh, I'm calling because um, my wife signed up for a service that you offer. I said, what's your wife's name? She tells me her name. I said, absolutely. Well, I found out that you're a nigger, and I don't want your service. I said, excuse me? He said, you heard me. I don't do business with niggers. I said, um, no, then I paused because I was, I was shocked. Yeah. He said, why are you being quiet? Are you taking notes? Because there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. And I won't repeat every single word he said, but he said to me that based on his, stat his status in the community and who he is, based on his background, I can't touch him anyway. And if it was up to me, I would hang you and everyone else up on poles, all up, all, all up and down 81. I said, um, and then he, he made reference to the fact that he, was, he had military background. I said, so you've, you've served the country? Yes, and, and you protected our freedoms? He said, yes. I said, I would imagine at some point in battle, you were beside people who looked like me. Yes, I was, but they're still niggers. I said, okay. I said, um, you are aware that I know who you are. I mean, he gave me his wife's name. And he had no concern about being identified. Because he already said to me, there's absolutely nothing you can do to me. And so, someone that's been doing this work for 31 years who, and we're not talking about a long time ago, I guess it's a few years now, to hear that in the way in which it was delivered with great hatred, yeah. with great intensity, and he had never met me. He had never met me. And so two things happened for me. One, am I now charged to do more? Or do I just quit altogether? It's just not worth it. After 31 years, I can get a phone call like that. After 31 years, I can have someone stand and sit in front of an audience and articulate those words. Am I even making a difference? Why put in the time and the effort when we're not going anywhere? 
And so what I decided to do just to give myself some um, a release of what was an enormous amount of frustration, I went on the social media and I reached out to my colleagues who do the work that I do. And I shared my story to some degree. Only to get back all the other stuff that they were experiencing, all the other stuff that they've witnessed. And it seemed like it was a resurgence that we've gone from covert to overt. And, and so I, I needed to know that I wasn't <laughs> uh, in it by myself. And so I was encouraged by the people who do this work who I respect. I was encouraged by those who have changed their lives because of the work uh, I've been able to do in my 31 years. Um, and so what I decided out of that conversation, all those conversations, is that the work that I do matters. It's a simple matter of justice. And that in the midst of those horrible stories, there's some incredible stories. I'm sure. I've been in uh, situations where people have made a switch in the moment because they heard something they never considered. They heard a perspective they never considered. Uh, they were living off of misinformation. And it was a, you know, sort of an aha moment. And they began to look internally about what they needed to change about themselves. Most people can't tell you why they hate. How do you hate strangers? How do you hate people you've never met? Because you don't see them as people. You see them as abstractions that are representative of certain situations. I don't know. But you, you, the only way you can maintain that, I think, is if I don't see you as a whole person. I recognize you as an ethnic identity above all. If I do that, I can stay at a thousand feet. But once I get to know you, you become fully human. And our shared experiences at least in my thinking, break down all these walls that may have separated us. But like the gentleman who got on the phone with you, you will forever be a negative abstraction as an ethnicity. Not, you're not even a whole human being, if that makes sense. I mean, that's just looking from the outside in. When I, when I you know, I, I, I do a lot of traveling and speaking. And when I'm at colleges and universities, for example, let's say I'm at a predominantly white college. I'm talking to the first-year class because I'm the first-year speaker. And the one thing that I'm often called to talk about is this whole idea of diversity and inclusion and how do we make the most of this experience. And so I say to my white students at predominantly white schools, I say, I work with corporations, the very corporations who will one day look to hire you, and they have expectations. And those expectations is that you can walk into this environment and be able to engage with, talk with, communicate with, and work with people of all kinds of backgrounds. And if you can't do that, you are a liability, not an asset. And so in your institution, because it's predominantly white, you have a disadvantage. Because those experiences that you need to have before you leave here will not happen on their own. They have to be facilitated. They have to be intentional just simply based on the demographic. Because you can walk into every class and have a white professor, that the majority of your class will be white, your group, your, your, your workout group will be white, the people who live in your hall will be white, your roommate will be white. 
So at what point in this experience do you begin to develop the ability to interact interculturally or multiculturally? You have to take action steps in order to grow yourself in that area. And then I say to the students of color who are very few, you have an advantage. And they look at me like, excuse me? Where's the advantage? The advantage is this. You can't help but work with people and interact with people and communicate with people who are different than you just solely based on the demographics. How awesome would it be if the students, both the predominantly represented and the underrepresented, would create an opportunity to collaborate, to be intentional in conversations and relationship building? Who would you be in terms of your markability if you took advantage of that? If you would do some things that were uncomfortable. Because it says the African-American student organization, it doesn't say that you just have to be African-American to be in it. But it would be pretty uncomfortable to ask to go join. And that's the uncomfortability that's required of you if you want to position yourself to be marketable. Mm -hmm. If you want to move from your best to your greatest, you have to find ways to be uncomfortable. If you want to be challenged and charged with who you are because you want to become more than that, you have to position yourself to be uncomfortable. There are opportunities that exist in this community. When I look at the racial reconciliation group of individuals who've come together, it's a very diverse group of people. And their commonality is in the fight for racial reconciliation, for unity in our community. We have people who are represented in our organization who are parents, who are people who are retired educators, people who are pastors, people who are executive leaders in our community, people who are lay folks. I mean, we have a variety of people who care and who are committed to eliminating, eradicating the whole idea of racism, the thing that divides us. Now... Will it happen in 15 minutes or 15 years? No. But can we at least work to minimize the number of times that one has to endure? Can we identify a pool of people that folks can go to that they know are supportive and see the value in them, regardless of the color of their skin? Can we create contradictory experiences? When I'm in front of a room, Pete, I'm a contradiction. When I walk into a room, I can tell right when I walk into it that there's uncomfortability. And so I say right away, whatever preconceived notion you have about me as a speaker, pick it up and put it in your pocket. And allow me the opportunity to introduce myself from the inside out. So I can get you past what you see. Get to the content of your character. Yes. So that you can understand that it's probably more that we have in common. Right. Well, when I walked into the room, everything that you began to think about me had everything to do with what you were taught to believe about someone you don't know. Mm -hmm. But every time you walk into a room, you have to prove yourself like that. That's something that I don't have to do. I can't argue that. People say to me, uh, Marvin, I don't see you as black. I say, well, I have a pretty good eye doctor. What are you saying in essence? It's a clumsy effort to be colorblind. But there's no such thing. Right. It's, it's, it's also kind of denying the reality of your ethnicity. It's even deeper than that. Think about it for a moment. 
if I've been taught to believe, if I've been socialized to believe that a person that looks like Marvin is not very intelligent, does not bring anything that, that can bring anything of great value to my life, um, is oftentimes involved in crime, um, is always looking for handouts. I mean, the list goes on. Right. But yet I've spent time with you, and you're a pretty decent person. You have compassion. You're intelligent. You can put together a complete sentence. This is a contradiction for me. And on top of that, you've poured into me. You've been able to teach me and help me reach places I never reached. And so because I'm, I'm in a tug of war right now about what I was taught to believe about you, and you're a complete contradiction of that, the only reason I can accept you is to qualify it. But know that my love for you is you knowing that I don't see you as black. You've it's almost black. like the only way that I can comprehend this in my psyche is for you to understand I don't see you as black because for me to see you as black is so against everything I've ever been taught to believe. Think about that for a moment. Yeah, that's uh, what I would characterize as some very, very lazy thinking. The inability to distinguish the individual from the collective. The inability to see the individual, as we were talking before, as a whole human being with unique experiences, unique character, and worthy of respect. Scott, what message, when you're talking to, when, when you're preaching, what message are you putting out into the community to kind of help address these issues? Because they're there. I mean, we're, we're hearing them now. They're happening right now. Uh, what is the message that you can put out to kind of contravene I try to get people to be willing to listen and understand and have compassion for people who look different than they do. Try to enter into a world that they've never experienced and understand that, that people like Marvin, people of color, even in this community, suffer daily from judgment, from exclusion, from people deciding that they don't want to be around them. So I... I I'm not, I'm not asking for much. Right. Just try to listen to the experience of people who are different than you. And I'm not talking about my church now. I try to have conversations with this whenever the opportunity presents itself. I have had almost no success with white people explaining the work that I'm in and racial reconciliation, talking about how transformative it's been, listening to stories of people like Marvin. And I urge them, you know some black folk in your life, right? And they say, yeah. Well, just go up to them and, and ask, well, what's it like being black in this community? Just, just tell me. Invariably, I get a comment like I had a conversation this summer with a, with a, a church musician, um, a leader in his church, and I was telling him about the racial reconciliation group I'm a part of, and his response was, well, you should go back and tell those people to listen to Herman Cain because his message, you need to pull yourself up about your, by your bootstraps and stop whining 
about racism in America is what they need to hear. Over and over again, people keep coming back at with me. I, I don't want to hear it. There's a term for it, white fragility. Most white folk just don't want to go there. And I think it's largely because if they admit that there's racism in them, in their community, in their society, woven into the history of this country, then they might have to change and do something about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they just don't want to go there. Yeah, that goes to a concept <clears throat> that I read about years ago, kind of the, the, the article is titled The End of White Guilt, where a certain section of white America was just done. And racism is over. And, you know, <laughs> listen to Herman Cain, you know, or whatever. Barack Obama was president. It's over. As if that is the daily reality of, of people like Marvin, when it, it's clearly not. So there's an intransigence you're finding. Yes. Well, Marvin, how do we go about addressing that? I mean, to, to grow up, you have to show up. What I mean by that, there are opportunities for those. And let, and let me let me be real clear. Our group can't exist without white people. Scott and I could say the same thing to the same group of people. And it'd be received by Scott and not received by me. I understand that. I get that. Because oftentimes they can't get past what they see. And so in order for us to make a real difference, it needs to be a collective effort of both brown people mm -hmm. and white people. Mm -hmm. I'm not motivated just so that people of color are no longer experiencing racism. That's part of it, a significant part of it. But I'm talking about all the relationships that are missed. Because we're, we're hiding behind this fence that has absolutely no purpose. Racism. And I get that what we were founded on and so forth and so on, but we still have the ability and the power to make a decision. It, 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 as Scott said, it's not that difficult. I'm just going to stop judging folks and get to know people through my conversations with them and my relationships with them. Because at the end of the day, if I don't do that, I'm simply making assumptions about who people are. And I miss out on incredible relationships that could exist. If only I made the decision to be an independent thinker mm -hmm. around this particular issue. Time out for saying that's what I was taught to believe and well, that's what I know. And well, and, and I, I learned, you know, I, I never had an opportunity to meet anybody. I grew up in a place where there was no people. I get all that. But there are ways for you to infuse yourself into experiences that broadens your understanding. It's a choice. It's a decision. I want to, uh, before we wrap up, I want to get to, we have the listen and lament section. Very yes. powerful. Yes. Clearly. Uh, address and ally. So, or ally. The ally part is the part I want to discuss. What are, can we go out into the world and do? I don't know about you, Scott, and Jeremy and I were talking just before we started that I've had incidents with other white men where they've made assumptions about what I think about other ethnic groups, and they freely use the N-word in front of me, making that assumption that looking at me, that I'll be okay with that. Now, 
In full honesty, I was caught flat-footed. I didn't know what to do. In one case, I called the guy out because he was kind of a friend. In another case, I just walked away from it. But I feel like those are the moments where you and I, Scott, Mm -hmm. it becomes our job to address it directly. So what are the, what, how do we do that with the proper intentions? Not anger, not putting people on the defensive. How do we address that? Do you, have you had incidences like that? Oh, plenty of them. I, you know, people usually behave well around me because I'm a pastor. If they know I'm a pastor, uh, they clean their acts up. But sometimes it, people don't know what I do for a living. I, I just confronted and ask, well, why would you say something like that? Mm-hmm. Where does that come from? What kind of, ex- and challenge them about the experiences they've had and the judgment that they're making on somebody by using that word and the impact of that word yeah. in the history of the United States. I, I try and call it out directly. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen to me very often. And, and when that happens to people like us, Pete, it's uncomfortable. Imagine you're somebody like Marvin who has to deal with that more frequently. And look at the the courage and steadfastness he has to move towards people who are being hateful Mm -hmm. to him. We're talking to people who are being hateful to someone who's not even in the room. And it's hard for us to summon up the courage to do that. Um, Well, for me, there's a shock effect. Yeah. Because I guess I'm in my bubble where doesn't everyone think like me? You know, evidently not. You know, you've got people who are free, free to use that word and with all the bad intention that they can muster. And I guess I have to, or people have to become more in the moment, like you're saying, and confront it. Can, I, know, go ahead. can I address that? Sure. Excuses are tools of the incompetent. They're used to build monuments of nothingness. And those that specialize in their use are seldom capable of anything else. Therefore, there'd be no excuses, please. I remember hearing that once. And my point is this. I just did not long ago. I don't know. Scott, did you participate in the bystander behavior training? No, I did a bystander behavior training. And the purpose of that training is what you just laid on the table. Here I am in a situation that I'm shocked by. I'm shocked that someone would say it out loud. I'm shocked that they said it at all. And I know that in my heart I need to do something or say something, but I'm, I don't, I'm not sure what I need to do. That can no longer be an excuse. Because when we do nothing at all, what we've done is encourage them. Legitimize it. Oh, sure. Significantly so. Oh, I accept and, my and, failure in the moment. Oh, no, no, sure. absolutely. And, and I appreciate your honesty because that's the first start. But here's what we do, because I'm a firm believer. You can't expect to know what you haven't been taught. You can't expect to go do if you don't have the skills or the competencies to do it. But we are all capable of doing one thing. No, thank you. I'm not interested in that conversation. Or when I find the courage, I ask for a do-over. We had a conversation the other day that, quite honestly, I was disturbed by but didn't have the courage nor the how-to to to respond, but I think we should have coffee. Because in that conversation, I'm able to identify what their areas of development is. They've lived their life a certain way because I'm hearing in this conversation, they lack accurate information. 
they have no idea about the impact of the word of the language. And so I use all of those depending on the circumstance I'm in. There are some situations where it's not a good idea right. to engage or to come. And the other one is confront. And sometimes that's very appropriate depending on the atmosphere, the environment, all those things you have to take mm -hmm. into consideration. But there are actual ways that one can learn how to interrupt the oppression and the hatred. Mm -hmm. We'll do some of that in, in what we do in our racial reconciliation group. What we want to move people from in the second stage is the how-to. How do I become an ally and an advocate? How do I become an active participant in our community's rescue from racism? What role can I play? What can I do every single day to make the difference? And what do I need to stop doing? What do I need to stop doing? And that's the focus. That's the hope. Mm -hmm. Coming together, I want people to understand there are no absolutes. There are some absolutely incredible people in this community who just happen to be white. And there's some incredible people in this community who happen to have a different color skin other than white, whether they're brown or red or yellow. Magnificent people who are doing the work, who are confident and courageous enough to admit their shortfallings, who understand that white privilege exists and some that denied it ever existed. But at the end of the day, this is our community. Justice is for all of us, not just us. And that's the reality here. Yeah. And so our hope in this organization as I close, and I, I want to say this to Scott, and I want to say it publicly. His presence and his voice matters more than he can ever begin to comprehend in this work. It's when we do this work together as humans, as individuals with compassion and a desire for our children to live in a world where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Dr. King right. was a dream, but there's realities of that. Scott and Marvin is an example of the possibility of having relationships with someone who happens to identify differently who has a different skin color and learn from each other and grow with each other and be honest with each other and be vulnerable with each other and be transparent with each other. That's how we build relationships. Well put. And that's our hope. Well put. Well, I want to thank you both so much for an interesting conversation. I think if anyone is out there listening, Sunday, February 10th, from 3 to 5 p.m. at Central Presbyterian Church. That's on Lincoln Way West. Uh, on the square. On the square. On the square. I would urge you to attend. Uh, this has been pretty powerful. And that comfort zone that some of us are living in, we need to get out of it. So, again, thank you, Marvin. Thank you, Scott, for a great conversation. Thanks for having yeah. us. Thank you all. Jeremy? I'll just say, uh, if you want to send us an email, do that uh, to progresspod at gmail.com. If you have any comments on or questions about this event or the show today, and if you have any ideas for shows that we could do in the future, let us know, progresspod at gmail.com.